I've had great joy in the Lord as we continue to open this word. Uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to be able to sing praises to our God. What a blessing it is to be able to have his word in our hands. You think about that for a little bit, that we have a, a, a love letter from God that we can open up, that we can study, that we can have impact our life in such a way that we are no longer the same, that we are changed. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it great that God loved us enough to give us uh, the Word of God, fellowship with the saints, and uh, voices to sing out, even if they're uh, good voices or bad voices, right? Even, even the bad voices are okay, right? Sing loud. Sing loud. Sing loud. I heard some of you singing loud. No, no. <laughs> Me too, right? Hey, in the 1994 Winter Olympics in Norway... There was a 23-year-old man. His name was Tommy Moe. He was from the USA. I don't know if you remember this guy, but he won the gold medal on the men's downhill. It was, as they say, a beautifully controlled run. I mean, it was done with perfection. Everything was perfect. After his victory, Moe was interviewed, and he explained the secret to his success, and he said this. He said, I kept it simple. He said, I focused on skiing, not on winning, not on where I'd place. And he said this, this was interesting. He said, I remembered to breathe. Sometimes I don't. The winner of the gold medal in the Olympics in that event that year got there by concentrating on the basics, even things as basic as breathing. If we are to have a, a strong walk, if we are to have a worthy walk, we must excel in the basics, the basics of the Christian life. It is in the fundamentals that we win or lose. In our passage, we're continuing uh, from last time, we're talking about the basics. We're talking about fundamentals, which are the key to the success in the Christian life. Now, last time we, we introduced kind of the foundation, right? The root, as it were. And today we turn our attention, you have an outline in your bulletin on four components of this worthy walk. And you'll remember that our purpose in this life is to walk worthy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're moving from the root, which is that, that uh, being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding to the fruit, the things that come out of what has happened because we have been encountered by a, an awesome God, we have been encountered by his word and his spirit is leading us. So today we're going to look at those four important components of a worthy walk. If you've got your Bible open, I hope you do, look at Colossians chapter 1. Let's read our passage again, verses uh, 9 through 14. For this reason also, Paul writes, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we ask for distractions to pass away, that we would be able to focus in on your word, that your spirit would apply it to our lives, that we would leave here encountered by your truth and by you. 
<coughs> and Lord, that we would be changed. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> now you notice on your bulletin that we have an outline there, and, and we're going to give you four A's, okay? <coughs> four components of a worthy walk that is characterized uh, that characterizes a worthy walk. The first one is it's action, okay? A-C-T-I-O-N, action. <coughs> Excuse me. And we see that in verse 10. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit <coughs> in every good work. Here, here's the point, okay? We've talked about this being filled full with knowledge, right? Now what we see is Paul continues to pray for them is that knowledge results in action, it's not vice versa, okay? You understand that. Uh, action does not, re, re, does not bring knowledge. Experience is not our source where we get knowledge, right? <coughs> I've seen this all through my, my life and in ministry. There are people who say, well, I just know this is the way it is because I've experienced it, even though the Word of God says something different. That is, is the wrong idea, okay? You do not judge the Word of God by your experiences, do you? Rather, the Word of God is the... The, the judge, it is the one that produces the actions, not vice versa. <coughs> now the Christian here, would you mind giving me a little water, Kim? The Christian here is to bear fruit, okay? We're bearing fruit, it says, in every good work. Now, I have a plum tree in my yard, okay? And my yard's a plum tree. When I go out into the yard, when it's time for, where the fruit's coming, I look up in the tree and guess what's on that? This is really cool. You're never gonna believe what's on it. All right, anybody got a guess? Anybody over here? What, what do you think grows on that tree? A plum tree. It's not a trick. What do you think it is? Plums, you guys, straight A's, thank you. Anybody, can we get you anything else? Oh, that's cold, that's good. Um, yeah, I've never gone out there, I will never go out there, and what comes out of it is, say, oranges, right? I mean, a plum tree with all its uh, little rooty desire cannot push out an orange no matter what, right? You know a tree, what does the Bible say? By its what? Fruit, okay? Now, what's happening here is, is we've been encountered by God as he's uh, changed us, saved us, uh, given us his spirit to indwell us, instructed us by his word. You start to see the fruit bear that is the fruit of a life that has been changed. That's why Paul prays, hey, I pray that they would be filled full with a knowledge of the will of God, that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding, that, that as this encounters their life, they would be bearing every bearing fruit in every good work. That's an amazing statement. I, I love the word there. Look at verse 10, the word every. There's no limitations there, right? Uh, and the idea of the word every there is it means like every sort of good work, all kinds of variety of good fruit that God has for you to bear in your situation. It's interesting to compare that verse with verse six. In verse six, it talks about the gospel bearing fruit, right? And that's in what Greek middle voice, which means it's bearing fruit of itself. The gospel is bearing fruit of itself. It's not saying that we're bearing fruit of ourselves here. It's active voice in, in verse 10 here. And it means that the transformed life is actively endeavoring to bear fruit and, and working towards that. And the verb here is also present tense and continuous, which means it's happening now and it's going to continue to happen. It will be characteristic of your life as one who is in Christ. The worthy walk is characterized by continual, consistent, and active bearing of fruit. And that's why it's the first component of a worthy walk here. That, that, uh, that when it, we talk about a worthy walk, it is marked by its actions. Now, 
the question that should be raised in each of our minds as we come to this is we should be asking the question, well, what kind of action do we see in our own lives? What, what kind of fruit are we bearing? Again, this is not the idea, look at the fruit I'm bearing, how much I've done, right? That I'm earning favor with God. You understand that, right? When we talk about action, it is a resultative thing because we have encountered God, not a uh, earning thing where we're earning favor with God. I hope you got that, right? You got that? If you got that, give me one of those. Good, all right. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The other ground of my own righteousness is sinking sand. I need the righteousness of Christ, and it's with his blood and what's happened there, that's why I can stand before a holy God. He sees Christ when he sees me. How cool is that? But as he's encountered me, there is change. He is a powerful God who is working, and therefore he is working through us and bringing about this this fruit-bearing process. And so the question that you and I should be asking is, what do we see in our own lives? Do we see the Spirit working through us? Do we see uh, fruit being born? Now, there are some areas that really bring that around. There are means of grace that help this to happen, right? And God has given those to us. And so if you're looking and say, well, I see fruit, I'm thrilled about that. Praise God, he brought it about. But I also want to see more. Well, here's how you can do that, Okay. So you want to look at things like, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? Now, when I say how much time, I'm not talking about quantity as being the number. I spent 16 hours in it, but my mind was everywhere else. No, no. How much time is the Word of God in you, right? Uh, Memorizing it. What a great way. You know what? In in seminary, and we had to take uh, English for seminary, right? Where you learn how to diagram sentences and things like that. You know what's really cool about memorizing the Word of God is you don't really have to learn how to diagram a sentence. You don't have to go subject, verb, draw a line here, direct object with a line pointing back, all that kind of stuff, right? Not nonsense, it's valuable, I guess. But I'll tell you what, when you memorize the Word of God, you know what happens when I memorize the Word of God? It automatically is getting diagrammed in my head because I'm thinking about, oh, every good work, okay, let's see, work, okay, I know what that is, good is a, is a, I may not know to call that a, a, an adjective, but I know that it's describing that work, which is what an adjective does, right? Good. Every, same thing. All the prepositional phrases, it all starts going together as you try to remember this. And so the Word of God is pouring through, and you're understanding the depth of it instead of just blowing by a verse and going, wow, that was cool. I really covered, I read, I read Leviticus today. Aren't I holy? No, no. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. So you want to look at things like, well, how's my prayer life? Am I in, uh, am I in prayer? How's my time in the word? Am I, am I memorizing God's word? Am I sharing my faith? Am I encouraging the flock? Am I giving of myself and my time and my money and things like that? What do I see in my own life that are the fruits that God is bearing in me? Because in and of myself, I'm not doing any of those things, right? It is, it is showing that God is working. So the, the worthy walk is characterized first by action. Number two. The second component of a worthy walk is it's characterized by awareness. Awareness. It is marked by an increasing awareness and knowledge of God. Look back at verse 10. Again, the purpose, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and check this out, increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, do you see the balance there? Where did we start? What was he praying for the foundation to be? Understanding, right? Knowledge, wisdom, those kind of things, filled full. And now that, that issues forth with action that flows from that. And then guess what else happens? Knowledge increases all the more. You, want, you grow in your knowledge of God. 
That's growth in action, bearing fruit in every good work, and growth in knowledge. And it's this upward spiral that's going on. You know, there, there, there's an important aspect to the Christian life that sometimes we miss. We kind of go, well, we've got saved, meaning justified, right? And that's it, we're there. We've got our address in heaven, life is good. But the sanctification process, which continues on, is a growth process, Right? You're ever ch- it's like if you were to graph it. Remember, I like to graph things, right? So if you were to graph, and then the, the, the x-axis would be time, right? And the y-axis would be holiness. You would see in a Christian's life an ever-increasing holiness, right? Becoming more and more Christ-like. That's what's happening in your life. He is con- we are being conformed into the image of a son in biblical terms, right? Is it a perfect straight line going up? No. We have times where we grow a lot. And we have times where we maybe fall back and re-grab a few idols and things like that. But the trend line, if you were to place it on there, is upward towards Christ's likeness. And, and so there's growth. It's just like with a child, okay? If you look around and you see there's a, I was looking at a little baby back here just a while ago. A baby is different than, a, you know, a, a 74-year-old man, right? Or a 23-year-old guy. There's change that occurs, and that's the way our Christian life is supposed to be, right? If, if you were to go to the grocery store, okay, go down to Ralph's, and you were to run into me there and my wife, Kim, all right? And, and when you ran into us, you, you, it was very strange to you because I was riding in the cart in a diaper with a bottle in my mouth. Would that, like, totally freak you out or what? It should. The, answer, the correct answer to that is yes, it would be disgusting and totally freak me out. Why? Because I'm a grown man and that's not the way I'm supposed to behave, right? That's, there is expected growth. As a baby moves to a toddler, to a, a, a teen, to a young adult, there's a process that goes on. And that's the way it is with us spiritually. We are to long for the pure milk of the world as babes, right? First Peter 2, 2, right? But past that, there is a growth that goes on where we move not just to milk, but we also move to meat and the deeper things of life. Let me show you that uh, if you turn over to the book of Hebrews quickly. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm losing pages from my Bible. Verse 12. Now, Paul, these are some of this section of of Hebrews, you run into a really difficult passage that people stumble over and struggle over, can't lose my salvation, things like that. I'll give you the Cliffs Notes, you can study it later. You can't lose your salvation. If you had it, you will persevere, all right? But in the middle of this, Paul is trying to talk to these people who are professing but not maybe possessing, okay? And so he's talking to them and he says, I want to tell you more, but I can't. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. Well, look at verse 11. Concerning him, we have, talking about Melchizedek, he's going into the word deeper and deeper. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why? Since you have become dull of hearing. Okay? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for somebody to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. 
So he's drawing a picture there where he said, as you have encountered the word of God and the fruit bears and you're increasing in knowledge and you're seeing that applied with wisdom and understanding, there is a growth where you're moving from just milk to meat and you're able to deal with more difficult situations as time goes on. You understand where I'm going with that? And this is the picture here is that, you know, there are Christians who have been Christians for 25 years, but are still just getting bottle fed. And they're kind of like me in that grocery cart at Ralph's. Their whole diet comes from sermons and Sunday school lessons and the radio, etc. But they never get in the word themselves. And then all those things I mentioned, sermons, right? Uh, Sunday school lessons, the radio, some of it is good, right? It can be good. But you also need to be in the word of God yourself. We should be like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97, who cries out. And by the way, Psalm 119 is awesome, right? Every verse has the word of God in it somewhere, every verse. But in verse 97, he cries out and he just, he gets overcome by it, just marveling at what God's truth, his word, his precepts have done. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Isn't that great? The knowledge of the true believer should not be stagnant, but it should be increasing. As I've pastored, you know, one of the things I always did when my scripture reading was a psalm. And the reason for that is psalms show the attributes of God. And they're a great opportunity to just show how big and great our God is. And so it leads to understanding. We should be growing day by day in the knowledge of God. If we have an accurate view of God, it will affect our lives. So let me ask you a question here. Are you growing in the knowledge of your Lord? I mean, think back five years, 10 years. Are you growing? Are you the same or have you moved back? We should be in the word daily because that's how we get to know him. We should be following his teaching because that's how we get to know him better. I remember when I was in seminary, I... When I came out of seminary, my company that I worked for in Houston said, well, why don't we open an office out there and maybe you can go scout it out for us, get it started. By the time you finish seminary, we'll hire somebody else and they can take it over. I said, oh, awesome. God, how great you provided that way. So I come out here, start doing all the legwork. I've done a lot of work in California before I ever got here. It was always a great place for me to work, a lot of jobs and profit and all that kind of stuff that's so important in the corporate world, right? And I get out here. And for nine months, I just work it as hard as I can. And you know what happened? Nothing. It was terrible. I mean, I could not make anything happen. I prayed. I thought, this is God's will, obviously. This is how he's paying for my seminary, right? But at the end of that nine months, I looked at it and said, you know what? I can't, in good faith, do this to this company because it's not the right time out here. The economy's had some changes and things like that. So I called them up. I said, it is not in your interest to do this, and we need to close that down. I didn't have another job lined up, by the way. I had no idea what God was going to do. I had two little ones that were looking at me and a wife that was wanting food or something, I think. But I knew that the right thing to do is to honor God and trust Him. I had credit cards. I didn't have debt, but I had credit cards, you know. I had a lot of credit cards. I could have been paying for things for a while on that. I chose not to because as I encountered God's word, it talked about how, you know, the verse we read the other day, the good father and the stone and the not, you know, you ask for bread, he doesn't give you a stone, that kind of thing. 
I'm like, I'm always going to the neighbors if I'm using my credit card to make things happen. It's just a personal thing I was working through at the time. So I said, I'm just going to trust him. And you know what? Based on a few simple precepts that my yes needs to be yes, that I need to honor him in the way I conduct my business, that I need to trust him for my provision and not go outside of him to try to figure it out. All I knew was that's the way, that's his character for me. That's the way I was understanding it. And so I was going to trust him. And you know what? I came out of seminary. I got another job, all that kind of stuff. Came out debt-free. It was awesome. I could go to the littlest church I could find that didn't need any money. I didn't have to worry about what are they paying you, any of that kind of stuff. It was awesome. Why? Because as we grow in the knowledge of him, we don't fear our circumstances and troubles all the same, right? I'm not saying that I didn't have nervous times. Oh, yeah, I had them. I remember leaving the seminary down there at Grace Community Church and walking out into that big overhang with the columns and all that. And I had a house back in Houston that hadn't sold and I had a bad renter who wasn't paying the rent. I was getting letters from the homeowners association that, uh, you know, it was getting destroyed and different things like that. And uh, I remember just walking out of there. I couldn't even see where I was going because tears were in my eyes. You know, I was like, God, now would be a good time. (laughs) You know, I know you're mighty. Uh Uh-huh. I know you provide, I know I'm where I need to be. Now's a good time to show yourself, right? Sometimes he shows himself immediately. Sometimes he says, hey, you need to endure and persevere a little longer, right? But that's the knowledge of God as he's growing us and changing us as we get to know him more. Even though there are those times where you're saying, Lord, increase my faith, right? You're also going, Lord, I trust you because I know who you are. The worthy walk is not characterized simply by action, bearing fruit, but also an awareness, a knowledge of God that is increasing. Number three, the third component of a worthy walk is, is characterized by its ability, okay? The Christian has ability, <laughs> and it's an ability that's not your own. It's given by God, and one that God is ever strengthening. That's what our verse says. Look at verse 11. It says that we're being strengthened, check this out, with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now, if, as we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we understand that Ephesians 3.16 tells us the source of the power, which is the Holy Spirit of God. And, and what we have here is a beautiful picture of as, as you are walking the worthy walk, you are being enabled by God himself to do it with his power and his resources. Once again here, the verb strengthened is present and continuous. It's the idea of I'm being strengthened here and now, and I'm continually being strengthened by him. And I really love the scale of the strength that God gives. Look at this verse 11. He strengthens us with what? A little bit of power? Enough power? Sufficient power? What does it say? All power. All power. The power, think about our God. He is the one, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, who spoke and it was. (laughs) Check that out. That's power, folks. I can go with my own physical force and I can maybe build something and spend many years building something and say, ta-da, look what I made, right? God goes out and he spoke just so it could be written down, I guess. You know, he didn't even have to do that, right? He just goes, let there be, boom, and there was. Let there be light, and there was light from this end to that end, right? Without sources. Variety, animals, water, sea, air, the universe. He just goes, boop. 
That's there. That's all power. That is the power, folks, that is surrounding us as believers. He's not withholding it from us. He is saying, I will give you all that you need to accomplish what I want you to accomplish with your life to bring glory to my name. That power may be the power to endure cancer to the grave. Right? It may be the power to uh, endure hardship. Say, well, power, it's not really power if I don't get healed, right? No, no. You show me somebody who's happy because they got healed, that's easy. You show me somebody who has joy in the Lord through a hard trial, and I, I will, uh, you, people look at that and go, that is the work of God. It's a great testimony. It's God's skill. Look at verse 11. According to his glorious might, <laughs> not your glorious might, not your wife's glory, your neighbor's glory. Right? His, there's no power greater than that, folks. There's no power greater than his glorious might. There's, there's no kryptonite that can thwart it. There's no haircutting like Samson that can end it. It's God-sized. It's bigger than super-sized, right? Now, what's the purpose of this power? Now, don't miss this because this verse is often misquoted terribly by the health and wealthers, okay? It's not simply for this idea of let's have some earthly miracles or healings or things like that. What's the reason? He gives it to us here. We don't have to wonder about it. Look at the end of verse 11. Paul answers it. He says, here's why I'm giving it to you. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Ooh. Don't run that verse, right? I like the all power. That was great. Spoke and all that. But for patience? For steadfastness? Let me tell you something. I hope you don't get bored with that concept. But this is really exciting here because we are given the strength, check this out, to deal with whatever comes along, okay, to the glory of God. And, and can I just submit to you that that is a lot better than getting in a circle and seeing kumbaya together and getting goosebumps, okay? To be able to endure and, and to have patience and to grow through whatever difficulties and trials I may face, that's awesome power of God, folks. He gives two purposes here, uh, that things, that, situations that we deal with. The first one is steadfastness, right? And that's talking about difficult situations and circumstances. That's enduring under trial. That's perseverance. The Greek word here was used as a, as a military term, all right? Paul has in mind the kind of steadfastness that is a, a person, a, an army able to hold its position in battle. Okay, you tracking with me? We're not, not giving up ground. We're, we're, we're holding our position in battle, and it's endurance in action. It, it is not quitting in, in difficult situations. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, by perseverance, the snail entered the ark. <laughs> right? Picture that for me. I don't know whose perseverance might have been Noah's. What are you going through, Right? The plan and the purpose is that you are to be strengthened with all power to stand strong, to win the battle, to not be defeated. You're shored up with divine power in full force. You are not alone in your trial. You are not resourceless. God is with you. God is strengthening you for it. It's so sad to see people waver in difficult situations when every provision has been made for them to have victory in Christ Jesus. So the first purpose is steadfastness, which addresses the power that we need to deal with difficult circumstances. 
Secondly, he gives another one here. He strengthens you with all power, another reason, so that you can have patience. And that's really dealing with difficult, not circumstances as much, but people. This involves non-retaliation, self-restraint. By the way, dealing with difficult people can be much harder sometimes than dealing with difficult circumstances. Think of all the stuff that Moses went through. I mean, Moses, he went, he would, there's a Red Sea blocking the way. Pharaoh's behind us, right? Let my people go. Nope, not going to do it. One, two, three. Come on. Are you not getting the lesson yet, Pharaoh? Right? But he was able to endure through all these different circumstances and trials and all this kind of stuff. And the thing that really brought Moses low was what? A difficulty with who? People, right? The children of Israel. I mean, go back into uh, Numbers chapter 20 briefly. Turn back to Numbers chapter 20. Verse 1. Let me just show you this, this situation. The sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came together in the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And what that means is the first month of the 40th year. They've been wandering for 40 years, all right, because they didn't trust God. And the people stayed at Kadesh, okay? They started their wilderness wandering here, and they, at the end, they're back there again. Miriam, that's Moses' sister, died there and was buried there. Verse 2, then there, here comes a circumstance. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. All right? That, they, they, didn't, they assembled themselves against means they came up angry. Mad! What are we doing here? What is the deal? Look at verse 3. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now, you've got to understand the context of what it's talking about there. That goes back to number 16, which is Korah's rebellion, right? Do you remember Korah's rebellion where there were people contending again with Moses and things like that, and the Lord didn't like that? Remember what he did? He opened up the ground and swallowed them up. Do you recall this? These guys are going, it's so good. What if, wouldn't it be great if we were them? By the way, back when that happened, a bunch of people said they were bugged by the plague that came and some of those kind of stuff, and, and 14,700 died then. And here they are doing the same thing. If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Complain, complain, complain. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now by the way, here's all power. Here's being strengthened. Here's all the provision that's needed for Moses and Aaron at this point. He says, take the rod for you and your brother Aaron. You need to assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. What's the instruction? Speak to the rock. I'm not an expert on the aqueduct system of L.A. and all that kind of stuff, but I'll tell you this much. I'm pretty sure that a normal source of water is not a rock, right? But God is God. He spoke it all into existence. And if he wants to speak water out of a rock, he can do that, can't he? 
He's got that kind of power. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. So far, so good, just as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly <coughs> before the rock, and he said to them, now Moses is now getting irritated with the children of Israel, right? He says, listen now, you rebels. <laughs> Maybe his attitude's a little out of whack here. I'm not sure. Shall we bring we, who? I think it was God bringing forth water. I may have to go back and read that. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock. What was he supposed to do? Speak to the rock, right? He struck the rock twice with his rod. And here's the grace of God, even with this rebellion of Moses' part, water comes out abundantly because God cares for his people. He preserves the remnant and all that kind of stuff, right? God still provides. Congregation and their beasts drank. But, verse 12, uh uh-oh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. Isn't that interesting? Believed me. Because you have not believed me. To treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And you know the story from there where Moses and Aaron are both precluded from going into the promised land because of that. Moses, all that he went through, and his, his failure came when the people got under his skin. He was dealing with not, uh, difficult circumstances for sure, but what really got him was the difficult people. He lost his temper, and he forfeited his right to enter the promised land. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 32, better a patient man than a warrior. A man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. See, God is not asking us to go and just wipe everybody out who disagrees with us, is he? He is is wanting us to model his character before a watching generation to show that we believe him by responding to him, by obeying him when he gives us instructions from his word. And he continually strengthens us with his power to deal effectively with any circumstances or any people that we may encounter. He gives us the ability to succeed in these areas. All right, what's the point on this one? Who's trying your patience today, right? Do you have any difficult people in your life? You ever had that before? You know what I'm talking about? Or do I need to just, I spent too much time on this already? Yeah, we all have that, right? What difficult people, what difficult situations are you encountering? Know today, and listen carefully to this, that Christ is strengthening you with all power according to his great might to glorify his name in that. How cool is that? In other words, you are a chance to to magnify God to a watching world that needs so desperately to know who the true one true God is we sing about. If you run into difficult people, don't stumble there. Have patience with them. Pray for them. Seek for their best. Glorify God. So we, we've seen action, we've seen awareness, we've seen ability. Let me give you one more A that the worthy walk is marked by. It's a fourth component, and it is, the worthy walk is characterized by, and this one may surprise you, it's appreciation. It's appreciation. The believer who is walking worthily is characterized by giving thanks to the Father. We looked at that in Paul's life already, didn't we? And saw just how thankfulness overflows. Look at verse 12. 
joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul has been modeling thankfulness and now he's, he's talking about that as part of the worthy walk. You may or may not realize this, but the Bible attaches great importance to this issue of gratitude. Enormous, enormous gravity to this idea of thankfulness. Why do you think that is? Let me, let me just try to simplify that and tell you why. The bottom line is this. When we are thankful, what does it reflect? That we are what? Starts with a D, ends with a dependent. Right? That we're dependent, right? Because we're going, hey, you know what? I'm thankful. What do you, when do you say thank you to somebody? When they've done something for you, when they've shown a grace to you, when they've come you know, alongside you in some way. And what it is is a life that says my whole life only exists because I have a great God who has given it to me. He gives me the breath in his lung. He gives me the grace. He gives me my salvation. He's transferred me from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's done all that for me. My only response should be if I've got any inkling of that at all is just go, woo, thank you, God, Right? It is a realization of our position of dependence that we could not do it on our own. By the way, the Bible also, on the opposite end of that, regards unthankfulness as a mark of unbelief. Did you know that? Let me show you this in a couple of verses. I think it's intriguing. Romans 1, 21, you don't need to turn there. Uh, it's talking about the slippery slope of, of, of unbelief and rejection of God. And in verse 21, it says this, for although they knew of God, okay, they had seen his handiwork, all that kind of stuff he's described earlier, they didn't glorify him as God, nor, check it out, give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Go to 2 Timothy 3. Let me show you this one. 2 Timothy 3, verse 2. Well, verse 1, it says, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. This is Paul writing to Timothy, right? Another pastor. He said, you know, it's going to get hard. There's going to be difficult times, circumstances, people, things like that. He talks about people in verse 2. He says, for men will be, <clears throat> let me see if this sounds anything like any area you might know in your own life. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It could have been written about the day and age we live in, right? But in the middle of that, you're going, yeah, 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 haters of God, uh, lovers of pleasure, yeah, get that, self-lovers, yeah, these are horrible people you'll describe them. But right in the middle, he says this, ungrateful. Ungrateful. That is, they do not recognize that there is a great creator. They do not recognize his provision and grace that, and his patience that's been poured out. And they say, look at what I've done with my own hands. It's like Nebuchadnezzar standing and looking over the, the, his kingdom and going, wow, aren't I cool? And what, what 
Paul is saying to Timothy, he says, this is, I'm telling you about unbelievers. And in the midst of all these marks of unbelievers, we have this issue of ingratitude. Our thanksgiving as believers should be habitual. Uh, it should involve a continual recognition of what God has provided for us, especially in the area of salvation. Just let me ask you a question here. Just think about this for a second. If you were to measure your spiritual condition based on the amount of thanks you offer up to God, how would you analyze your situation? You see, a Christian should be thankful. It shows a realization of what God's done. That's what verse 12 is talking about. Look at it. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. While unworthy, he graciously gave us this inheritance. Thank you. By the way, this is a present reality. The verb there is in the aorist tense. He qualified us at some point in time, and we're now in the realm of light, now positionally in that realm. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 puts it this way. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. You do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And so it's a, it's a settled deal. Our position is we have, are inheritors. Okay? It also has a future reality that certainly... Uh, which is how it plays out practically. There's a day coming. There, it's, it, we see it in, in limited light as we are being conformed to the image of a son, right? We see us inheriting a little bit more as it's in practice. But ultimately, we'll see it when? At glorification, right? That's when we see the reality of that inheritance. We will be as he is. There's a day coming where we will be glorified. You know, we're going to outlive the pyramids. You know what I'm saying? Everything else is going to pass away, but we have an inheritance that God has secured for us, that he has set aside for us, and that he has granted to us. And, and he elaborates in verses 13 and 14 on the basis of that inheritance. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And what you find here is you find Paul just saying his own testimony there. That's what happened to him. I was on the road to Damascus. I was breathing out. I was an enemy. I was going to arrest Christians, all this kind of stuff. But I was in the domain of darkness. But he, 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 not me, delivered me out of that domain of darkness. And check this out. Not only am I not in the domain of darkness anymore, but I have been transferred into the most blessed kingdom there is, the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul prays this prayer because he understands that believers stand in a special relationship to God. First thing is they've been rescued. They've been delivered from that realm, that authority, that dominion of spiritual darkness, that helplessness and that hopelessness described in Romans 1. They've been rescued and delivered, which also, by the way, suggests the danger of the situation. And then secondly, they have been relocated to the kingdom of God's Son. I love the story of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Not Melchizedek, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Melchizedek's okay too. Remember Mephibosheth? He's one of Saul's relatives. He, he was, when, when David came into the kingdom, when the regime, regime change was happening, ancient Near Eastern practice was to wipe out everybody's relatives. Just wipe them out. 
Your grandchild, wipe them out. Your dog, wipe them out. Everything. We don't want anybody coming back later and saying, that's my throne and getting a little army together and taking this thing back over. We're going to wipe everybody out. Mephibosheth should have been killed off. David didn't do that. In, in the process, when, when the, one, of the, one of the nurses was taking him away, he was trampled, he became crippled. So Mephibosheth lives later in life as a crippled person with uh, really a dangerous position to be in with a price on his head, so to speak. David, as he gets older and reflective, he asked his servant one time, he says, um, is there anybody left from the house of Saul? And what you might be thinking, he's saying next so I can wipe him out and I don't have to deal with this. But he says, is there anybody left from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? Loving kindness, chesed is the Hebrew word. It's the kind of just loving, gentle, sweet, seeks for the best for the other one, kindness. The servant answers and says, yeah, there's this one guy. He has kind of a strange name, Mephibosheth. You might get him confused with Melchizedek, but it's Mephibosheth. He says, there's him. And if, to shorten the story, what David does is he goes, he sends for Mephibosheth, he gets him, he brings him into the king's house. He doesn't wipe him out, he doesn't do what would be normal for what he deserves in that culture. But instead he brings him in, he sets him at the king's table, he gives him his land, and he makes him an heir to the mightiest man in the world at that time. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of what is being described here on a, less, on a much greater scale. We have been taken away from that position where we're crippled and, and we're under a penalty of death and all that kind of stuff. And God comes and he steps in. He shows his loving kindness, his chesed, his grace to us. And he brings us into his home and he gives us an inheritance. And we share in that inheritance. How cool is that? We sit at his table. We will live with him forever. He has taken us from the domain of darkness and transferred into us into the kingdom of his beloved son. W.T. Sleeper wrote a hymn one time that said these words, Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come, into thy freedom, gladness, and light. Jesus, I come to thee, out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my want, into thy wealth, out of my sin, and into thyself, Jesus, I come to you. We've been rescued, we've been relocated. And there's a third thing that he talks about here is a redemption. We are redeemed. Redemption was the price that was paid for a slave. It was a price that was paid for sin. Remember the sacrificial system? If there's a sin, what had to happen? There had to be a penalty paid. If you remember Leviticus 16, there was a scapegoat that they would lay their hands on and to symbolize their sins being placed upon him and send him out. In the New Testament, the price is the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the one that, that's the price of the redemption of you and I who are in Christ. When all of this happens, that's why we inherit the light. And because of our realization of this, we can't help but be thankful. Now, now if you're here and you're not a Christian, okay, this is a strange and a foreign concept to you, and it should be because you're not sharing in the inheritance. You haven't been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
Son, I'm not saying that as somebody who says, oh, look what I got, look what you don't got. That's not the point at all, right? Because what I got, I don't have because of my own doing, right? I don't have because I'm so great or anything like that. It's his grace. It's the same grace that he would offer to you so that you can be rescued, so that you can be relocated, and so that you can be redeemed and understand the joy of that and overflow with thankfulness. That's what Jesus Christ was all about. There was a penalty of sin that had to be paid. So God steps down from heaven, takes on flesh, becomes a man. He's still God. He becomes 100% man as if he weren't God at all, and 100% God as if he were not man at all. He's the God-man. He comes here. He lives the perfect life, born under the law, born of a virgin. He lives in such a way to fulfill that. He is not under the wages of sin, which is death, the Bible tells us, but yet he pays that penalty for those who are under that penalty, which is you and I who would put our faith in Christ. That's why Jesus Christ came. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he made that sacrifice. And God accepted that sacrifice and showed his pleasure with it and raised him from the dead. And so we as believers should look at that and go, oh man, I'm so grateful. I've tried on my own. It doesn't work, right? What I bring to the table is filthy rags. I need the grace of God. So as Christians, our walk... It's a worthy walk because his grace comes in our life and it's demonstrated by action of bearing fruit, by awareness of increasing knowledge, by ability as he strengthens us for the task and by an appreciation as we give thanks to God. And all these marks of a worthy walk flow out of an understanding of him and what he's done. Now, you'll remember as we go back to this, this is a prayer that Paul is praying. Okay? And can I just submit to you? This is a prayer that you and I should be praying as well. I'm not saying verbatim. I'm not saying word for word. All that. I'm not saying let's, you know, just get a little cord of beads or something and start saying it a bunch because that's what Pastor Dave said we ought to do. No. But I'm saying the heart of this is the heart of our, our prayer should be for ourselves, for our families, for one another, for our church families. You see, Paul knew, if you remember the context of Colossians here, that there were false teaching, there was false teaching that was coming in at Colossae, and he knew that to deal with that, he had to begin with prayer. He had to go to the one who could do anything about it, the one who strengthens with all might, right? So he went to Almighty God, the sovereign, and he petitioned him to work in those believers in such a way that they would be equipped to resist and discern and refute that heresy. Somebody once said, any discussion of the doctrine of prayer that does not result in the practice of prayer is not only not helpful, but it's harmful. S.D. Garden wrote this. He said, the great people of the world today are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer nor those who say they believe in prayer, but I mean those people who take time and pray. I want to ask something great of you today. I want to challenge you to pray. I want to challenge you to take Paul's prayer to heart and pray. Pray for the ministry of this church, for your leaders. Pray for me as I prepare for you weekly. Pray for the other families in the church, your own families. Pray for your brethren here. 
Pick two or three, four that you don't know very well. Pray for them. Get to know them a little bit. Pick one or two that might bug you in here. Pray for them. Watch the Lord work in that situation. Pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's wisdom and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they can walk worthy, right? Bearing fruit, strengthened with power for steadfastness and for patience. And pray that and then just watch and see what a mighty God will do in the midst of a congregation. It's a small group here, isn't it? Just a few. When you look at L.A., right? I mean, it's in a, how many elementary schools are in L.A., right? And here's one that has a gym or something that's full of folks who are here because they love Jesus and because they're thankful for what, they've, what he's done in their life. And what, what would happen if this little army here decided to seriously pray to an almighty God and be used submissive to what his will would be for your life, I wonder what the impact might be on Garden Grove, Anaheim, Orange County, California, the United States of America, Czech Republic, the world. If you think back to the beginning of the book of Acts, it was just a small group of folks up there. Who, what were they doing? Praying. They knew it wasn't them. It wasn't their great plan. It, hey, we're going to have more people in here if we put some plants on the stage or have a super nursery or decorate cool. We're not going to have a, well, the best church in the world if we have you know, the best popping music or whatever. It's nothing about any of that, really, is it? It's about an almighty God working through a, a fallen, broken people that he has redeemed so that he may use them to impact a society. How many people are, are touched by each of us in this room in the course of a week? all the different jobs and neighborhoods and places that you live. What if you, you took your, 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 your situation as an ambassador of Christ to heart and prayed to an almighty God and said, God, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what you want me to do, but I do know this. I'm submitting to you. I will be in your word. I'm praying to you for wisdom, for knowledge, that I would bear fruit, that I would have an impact. Lord, if you give me the opportunity, I want to bring the gospel to somebody else, and he will. And if you want me to disciple somebody, you know, I'm going to be there. I'll take the time and do that. I want to raise my kids to love you. I want to love my wife as Christ loves the church. You know, all those kind of things. I want to follow you and show you to a watching world. I wonder what the impact would be of a small group of people taking that to heart. Why don't we find out? Wouldn't that be cool? God of Acts 1 is not any different than the God now, right? There's some different ways. I'm not talking about gifts and all that kind of stuff, right? But I'm telling you that we have a mighty God. And he has a heart for the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that they may have life. And he loved you enough to give you life. What if he became the center of our, our, our affections? What if we sought him in prayer and followed him with our feet? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and I thank for your word which challenges our hearts and I thank you for this sweet church family that desires to love and serve you. And Lord, I thank you that, again, it's, it's, we're strengthened with your power and your might. That's awesome. It is not about us being the best or 
us speaking more eloquently or, or singing better or having you know, some sort of special giftedness that we have to manufacture, but that you give us our gifts. You've encountered us, and as we go forth to be witnesses of you, Lord, you'll use us as we seek you first in your kingdom. Or we know that your word says, Second Chronicles 16, that your eyes move to and fro throughout the earth, that you may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Lord, I pray that in this room, everyone here would say, you know, today my heart needs to be completely God's, yours, and that we would commit ourselves to that, follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, I pray that you would use us mightily in the times where there's persecution, that we would endure knowing that we are in good company there. And for the times when things are going well, that we would turn the glory all back to you as well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.